seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18, we started talking about God at work in my work, or God at work in Paul's work, or God at work in your work last week, and I wanted to actually make sure we were somewhat thorough. We don't get to talk about this that often, at least not on a Sunday morning. I wanted to make sure that we were somewhat thorough with this topic. And so if you would, and you've got your Bibles open to Acts 18, 1 through 4, I want to read this text to you and then another. Acts 18, 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, one of the questions that we were kind of playing around with last week was, what was Paul thinking while he was at work in this manual labor vocation, this, I guess you could call a side hustle that he had of tent making? What was Paul thinking while he was engaged in that work? And we actually have a number of texts in the New Testament that tell us what Paul was thinking and how he viewed his own tent-making work. One of the reasons why I wanted to spend a little extra time on this is that this clue placed here in Acts 18, 1 through 4, winds up being a kind of pivotal theme as Paul summarizes the entirety of his ministry in this area. You see in chapter 20, and you can turn there now if you have your Bibles with you, in chapter 20, he has decided to go back to Jerusalem and he has told the Christians in this land that he is leaving them and he probably will never see their face again. And he gives them a sort of farewell address. And in his farewell address, he summarizes his time among them and particularly his work among them. And so we actually can know how Paul viewed his own work, which is important for us because we're looking not for not for a modern day, a worldly or culturally driven perspective on how to view our work. We're asking, how do men and women of God view their work? And so now we have, in Acts chapter 20, a nice summary of how Paul viewed his own work. Acts 20, verses 31 through 35 will be our primary text this morning. And it begins by him addressing the Christians, saying, Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. There's that reference to what we saw in Acts 18, this tent making. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So this subsection is is, a, as I said, a farewell address and a summary of Paul's work. And he basically shows us, and we can observe this in the text itself, that his work basically took two forms. 
teaching, handling the word of God, and tent making. And what we can see from this summary and other texts as well is two basic ideas that we're going to discuss today. And the first one is, is that Paul worked hard and had the right heart in his work. And number two, there is a connection between Paul's work and God's word. So let's, let's just dive into that, these two simple ideas, and see if by God's grace and through his spirit this morning, you have a, a clearer sense of what God's doing in your work, whether that's in a career or in a kind of a placeholding job because you're younger and you haven't figured out what your career is, or whether you stay at home and work at home. Whatever you do, maybe God, Lord willing, will help us to see this morning a way to look at this work that we're called to do in a biblical uh, lens, through a biblical lens. So the first idea here is just this idea of hard work. Point one is simply hard work. Paul says that his teaching ministry was characterized by extreme effort. He says at the beginning of that text, for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So one of the things that typifies Paul's work was that it was hard work. Even his teaching work was hard work. It was hard in terms of the amount of time he spent on it. It says day and night. And it was hard in the kinds of things he had to do. He had to admonish people. And boy, that is an emotional toll. And it was hard work in that he did not become... So one of the temptations that we all have is to engage in flattery or silent, silent flattery, which is not, not talking with someone about concerns we have or engage in just open flattery. So as to avoid conflict and difficulty because conflict and difficulty is hard work. So occasionally this might surprise you, but occasionally over the past 20 plus years of preaching, I get in the car after sermon and my wife will say, well, you just made a bunch of more work for yourself. Uh, So Paul engaged in the hard work of saying hard things because it's often easier not to do this, but there's a way to say hard things that isn't hard. And that is to say hard things with a hard heart. You know, you can just be a bully. You can just, you can just say things uh, that are true without any with, with total indifference as to how people respond to it, as to, as to whether or not you said it well, and so forth. And, and that would be an easier way as well. Paul, Paul says here, I did not cease every day and night to admonish everyone with tears. Uh, everything about this ministry of teaching that Paul's engaged in is, uh, qualifies as hard work. Uh, by the way, ladies, if you're studying Jonah, so many of you are, boy, compare, compare the attitude and the ethos of Paul here with Jonah. Like compare those two. Like it's just an incredible comparison. Okay, so uh, he, says, he says elsewhere, and for instance, in, in verse 20, I'm still in Acts 20, Acts 20, 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Again, this is the hard work. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in, in, in public and from house to house. And then in verse 27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you 
the whole counsel of God. And the word shrink there is just this idea of just getting weary and losing heart and just not trying anymore. It's kind of like burnout almost. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, the believers there are challenged not to shrink back and be destroyed, but to believe and be saved. So he summarizes his work in another place to the Corinthians by saying, I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not me, but him who works in me. And to the Colossians, he said, for, I, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's life is typified by hard work and hustle. It would be easy to overly mysticize the impact this man had on the world and forget that really at the center of this, obviously, is a great big God, but also a bunch of grit and hustle and grind. This was a hard-working man. That's, that's one of the things we would never want to forget as we survey his effect on the church. This was a hard-working man. So, for instance, when he says to the Galatians, you know, hey, if you... If you so, therefore, as, as, as you have opportunity, do good to, to everyone, especially to the household of faith. He says, for, for if you sow, you will reap. It's like, if you do not grow weary in doing good. You know, he, when he said these sorts of things, this is a man who knew how to bite down on the bit and grind. Um, he says also, we, we know that that did, that, that, we know that it just makes sense, of course, that Paul's teaching ministry wasn't defined by super hard work and then somehow over in the tent-making world, he's just being casual and lame and so forth. We know that just intuitively, but, but there's a passage that he exhorts the, the manual workers in Colossians. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So if he is, if he is calling the manual laborers of the Colossian church to do that, we can be sure that Paul himself, as he's engaged in the activity of sewing tents and cut, cutting leather, he's also not only a hard worker in his teaching ministry, but he's a hard worker in his tent making as well. But there's another thing to see about this, and that is, is that it was hard work with the right heart. But there's all sorts of ways your heart can go wrong when you're engaged in hard work. And I suppose one of them most common would just be pride, right? It would be very easy to, to kind of catch a glimpse of yourself and see yourself working hard and become puffed up at what you see. Actually, uh, Dune is kind of a popular book and movie in this church, which I'm very proud of. I'm very glad about that. Uh, there's, there's actually a quote in the book of Dune where it says, without a sense of the sardonic, even occasional greatness will kill a man. And what it means is, is that if you're even kind of great for a second at anything, if you don't have a sense of a sort of self-humility and a sense that you're not really the it thing, even occasional greatness will destroy you. So one of the quick ways that hard work goes wrong is by <laughs> seeing yourself and saying, well, this is impressive. I'm really working quite hard. So Jesus says, of course, that when you give, and hard work is an act of giving, you know, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Try your best to avoid a sense of preoccupation with self or self-admiration as you work. And of course, Paul's theology of work 
had this built in, and your theology of work has this built in too, where you can avoid it if you just keep good doctrine and you believe it. Because one of the things I said as I read some of those passages from Paul was this idea of, I worked harder than any of them. And then what was the qualifier? Nevertheless, it wasn't I who worked, but Christ who worked in me. Or when he says it was him who wills and works according to his purpose who was working in me. So one of the things Paul was able to do in his hard work was he was able to see that it was Jesus who was doing the hard work. And then he was also able to see that Jesus deserved all of that he could do and way more. So that he was never giving Jesus a favor. He was never doing Jesus a favor. He understood his gospel and he understood that there was no way he could ever repay God for all that God had given to him in Christ. And so whatever he was doing was always less than what God deserved. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of really good attitudinal things to think about once you decide to become a hard worker. You're not out of the woods. You're just in a new set of woods. You have to have a right heart. And the one thing we see in this passage in particular is, is this one right-hearted thing we see in this passage is found in verse 35. He says in verse 35, in all things, so that just includes uh, the stuff he did with his hands and the stuff he did with his preaching, teaching. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. So the heart behind Paul's hard work was a heart of service, not a heart of self-congratulations. The heart behind Paul's work was a heart of service and not a heart, not a heart of self-congratulations. I was thinking about how, in, in many respects, dadness, being a dad, has provision kind of really rooted right in the core of what it means to be a dad. And I think, you know, that's just pointing to our, our Father God, who is the great creator and the great provider. I started thinking about ways to be a bad dad. I've dabbled, you know. Uh, we all have. But, <laughs> but uh, I started thinking about, well, what is a bad dad? I started thinking about, you know, sometimes it's interesting to just think about like, uh, like tropes or kind of big block meme type identities of what a bad something is or a good something is. Uh, and, and I started thinking about the, the ways to be a bad dad. And, of course, the worst dad of the worst of the worst dad is the deadbeat dad, right? And what the deadbeat dad is is the dad who is neither present nor providing. That'll tell you what a good dad is, if you think about it, at least in this sort of common sense, general revelation way. If a terrible dad is a dad who is neither present nor providing, then what, what is a good dad? A good dad, being a good dad means at least these two things, providing and being present. But then I started thinking about bad dads that weren't that bad, like they're just kind of bad dads. And you have one bad dad who is a bad dad because he is not making significant investments in providing for his family. So his, his failure as a father is he doesn't have a sense of responsibility to provide for his family. So he might be loving and present, but not a provider. And then you have another kind of bad dad who's on the other end of the spectrum, and he's a dad who is providing constantly. He's working super hard, but he's never present. Right? And, and he's giving lots of stuff and making sure his kids have lots of things, but he's not giving himself. Okay, so I started thinking through all that, and, and, and one of the things you could kind of draw from this is that 
the bad dad who is providing a ton but not present, he's probably getting his identity at work, right? He's probably seeing his worth and value through the lens of what he's accomplishing, not at home, but at work. But in many respects, the low provision dad often uh, is also got his identity in the same area. He's afraid to be rejected in the workplace. He's afraid to be rejected in the education space. He's afraid of being not measuring up, and so he doesn't try as hard as he might. And so there's this all these really interesting kind of like, why are we working and who are we working for? And Paul says, I am working, I am working to provide for those, for myself and for those that are with me. Look, let's just read the text again, starting in verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the heart behind hard work, the right heart behind hard work has to be, I am doing this to be a blessing to the weak. I'm doing this to care for others. And then Paul says that this is all, everything he's done is in accordance with the, what, the words the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is one of those moments where I would really love to have a, um, access to your attention span throttle. I'd really like to get you keyed in for a second here, so let's, let's, let's do that. Lock in with me, if you will, because this phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive, is the meaning of life, the meaning of work, the glory of God. It's like, I don't know if I'm over-exaggerating, but I mean, I think it's everything. Like, it certainly is the massive grace to give you biblical fulfillment and wisdom in your own perception of your work. There are lots of other ways to think about your work. This is the right one. It is more blessed to give than to be to receive. List, leaning into this and meditating on this and living this out and just even asking God, God, give me wisdom to see this truth. Simple phrase. You've, you've already, you're, you, I, didn't, I didn't tell you that phrase for the first time. Though. You've heard that phrase many times before. Ask the Lord to let that phrase bloom in your heart. Ask the Lord to help you to see how that's true of Jesus. Ask, ask the Lord to help you to see how that how that's can be true in your life. This can, this phrase can bring you joy in any career circumstance. It can bring you joy when your work is recognized. It can bring you joy when your work is unrecognized. And it can bring you joy in work that you don't enjoy. This is key. It is more blessed. Blessed, of course, means being happy. And it has this additional sense that there's an implication of enjoying favorable circumstances. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be blessed. This is the desire that has, you know, is as old as time. 
And throughout the centuries, people have mostly in all of their development of thought that we call thought religion or philosophy or so on, all of it almost is, has some kind of scheme or aim toward happiness. There's a sociologist named Philip Reef who postulated that mankind has gone through different phases of self-identification in their programs to happiness. And one one phase or one way of thinking about it is the political man and the political man's identity is connected to his interaction with his city or his town or civic life. And then there's religious man. And this he considers to be, you know, the the Christian view of this to be the, the high point of this particular way of thinking about life. And this is a person's identity connected to interacting with God. And then there's economic man, which is identity connected to interaction with commerce and provision and then there's psychological man, which is identity connected to the interaction with self. And Philip Reef suggests that this is where our culture is now. That we are in a, a period of time in which people believe that the means of, of finding happiness has to do with knowing one's self, of understanding oneself, of having a sense of how oneself is even doing. Um, you know, for years and years and years, you know, you, you, you could, in the car world, um, it's generally considered to be a nicer car if you have more gauges. <laughs> I tell you, like, the, pressure, the oil pressure and the, you know, everything. Um, but, and it's generally considered to be a cheaper car when they have what's called dummy lights. And you don't have any gauges except fuel and a speedometer. And then, like, if something's wrong, they'll tell you, you know. But in... In my estimation, and so far as you think about yourself, many of you have too many gauges. You just, you need, you need more of a dummy light setup. You just need to be less aware of how you are in general. Um, I think that's what biblical humility is, actually. C.S. Lewis thought so. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. But if Reef is correct, then there has been this new way of viewing self that is concerned with self. See, the other identity constructs, political man, religious man, economic man, they all involve seeking happiness by being connected to something bigger than self. But psychological man seeks happiness by seeking happiness. Like it's, it's the most um, unsophisticated, um, banal kind of approach. There's no nuance to it. There's no multi-phase approach to happiness in the psychological self. It's just looking at self. All the other ones are some kind of a dance where you're sort of cooperating in something in which you suspend initial happiness to get happiness in the back end. You can think of this as like with algebra, how there's an order of operations. And like, if you know algebra, you know the order of operations. You know it's not simple as this, 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 this. Psychological man, I think, really screwed people up because you've it's become this one-to-one -on -one direct kind of my happiness is found in me, and it's just a mess. So I think that psychological man, and I'm sure there's a lot of generalizations going into that, but I believe that psychological man is producing the most unhappy humans of any of these four phases. And the reason why psychological man is a thing uh, in this conversation has to do with a book that Carl Truman wrote um, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And that book's aim 
is, is this. That this. There's a few steps to this, but just bear with me. The book's aim is to ask this question. How has the phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, become a phrase that makes any sense to anybody? And then he says, Truman says, that if he told his grandfather, who's now deceased, who was a, a, a laborer in Birmingham, England, sheet metal factory, if he told his grandfather that phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, his grandfather probably would have laughed, but laughed because it would have not meant anything. It would have sounded like gibberish. And so Carl Truman's writing this book, this extensive book, um, about how did we get to the point where that phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, can have any meaning at all. And not only any meaning, but to be really no laughing matter. So one of the things he does is he talks about his grandpa and another issue. And this is the thing where, where work comes in. And I'm just going to read from, from his direct writing. He says, my grandfather left school at 15 and spent the rest of his working life as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham, the industrial heart of England. If he had asked, if, if he had been asked, if he found satisfaction in his work, there is a distinct possibility he would not have even understood the question given that it really reflects the concerns of psychological man's world, the world to which he did not belong. But if he did understand, he probably would have answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. If it did so, then yes, he would have affirmed that his job satisfied him. His needs were those of his family. And enabling him to meet them, his work gave him satisfaction. So what we're really getting at, we try to sneak up at there, is this problem of looking at your job and hoping that it fulfills you. And, and the idea is, is that that's good if it can. But if it can, it will only do so at like, like a small, more, like it, it won't always fulfill you. But the idea that we're getting to is, is, is there an alternative way of thinking about my work other than does this fulfill me? And the answer to that is what we see in Paul's summary. He viewed his work more like Truman's grandfather viewed his work. And that is, I worked hard to provide the necessities for myself and those who are with me. Because, because, not because I'm indifferent to happiness, not because I'm a robot, but because I believe the ancient gospel wisdom that it is more blessed to give than to receive, that my happiness will bloom out of a seed that falls to the ground and dies. So in a way, what we're, what we're seeing in this verse or this passage is that for many of us, the biggest hindrance to finding fulfillment in work has to do with seeking fulfillment if you find fulfillment in work, praise God. And I trust many of you do to some extent. But it seems that once that becomes the target, we wind up in trouble because we're veering from God's created way of work. God's created way of work is to give and to care for others. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should because this is the heart of the gospel 
John 12, 24 through 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. The rhythm of this verse is not, stop worrying about happiness. You you shouldn't desire happiness. You shouldn't care. That's not what this verse is getting at. This verse is telling you there's an order of operations. The math isn't as simple as you might think it is. The math isn't as simple as psychological man postulates. The whole idea here is to give you the trick, to give you the insight. Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, if you just let go of obsession with self and obsession with comfort and obsession with this moment, if it'll just die, it will bear much fruit. And then he predicts the outcome of psychological man. Whoever loves his life will lose it. The, the, most, the, 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 the clearest way to be unhappy is to seek happiness, naked, unsheathed, uh, one-to-one, no give and take, no faith. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And that's what Paul's showing us. He's showing us this through his life. Rather than seeking direct fulfillment directly from work, we seek fulfillment by providing for what he says in verse 34, the necessities of those of me and those who were with me. So here's the idea, the big, one of the big takeaways of this sermon. We are just built culturally to focus more on fulfillment in general than we should. We are built culturally to focus more on immediate fulfillment than we should. And so while that fulfillment is the aim, or one aim of the gospel, the way to get there is to serve. The way to get happy is to serve. And so focus less when it comes to work on fulfillment and more on family. Or... Focus less on loving what you do and focus more on loving those you are doing it for. That's the key. Focus less on loving what you do and focus more on loving those who you are doing it for. Give yourself away for the sake of the weak. This is the key to happiness. And some of you are doing that and you just need to be reminded that you are on the right track and to not grow weary in doing good. For you will bear harvest if you do not give up. And some of you need to realize that all of the FOMO and career concerns and questions, it's just all vanity until you decide why you're doing it. And the why is to help the weak. Stop focusing so much on loving what you do. And start focusing on loving those you are doing it for. So now let's look back at this verse because there are a few qualifiers that I think are important. You yourselves know, I'm in verse 34, that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want to lock in on this phrase to my necessities. I want to lock in on the phrase necessities. I I can't get into this too much. I want to be 
want to be as prompt as possible, but I, I think some of you need to be reminded that you actually can't outwork greed. The word necessities is a key function in the biblical understanding of work. Toiling for that which is beyond necessities has some value, but there are extreme limitations to it. And most certainly, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot attach ourselves to the idea of, of working so hard as to satisfy either our greed or someone else's because greed doesn't get satisfied like that. Number two, idolatrous cravings for comfort and control are more expensive than you'll ever be able to afford. So every time you think you've paid enough to feel in control, you will see something else you need. And you will see you need more money to get that thing. And it's a never-ending treadmill. Number three, you can't bankroll covetousness because covetousness is a sin that doesn't stop. So if you don't get the sin of covetousness and comparison and the love of comfort under control, your earnings, whatever they are, are just never going to be sufficient to satisfy those needs. Likewise, you can't fund fear. You do not make the mistake of thinking there is a number that will make you less afraid. It's a lie and it's a mirage and you'll get there and there'll be another number. Deal with your sin by trusting Christ, not by trying to work like a slave for it, for your sin. Generally speaking, God wants you first and foremost to understand that you have to have some sense of what are necessities and what goes beyond necessities. And, and allowing that line to ever blur is bad for your soul. And it's bad for the kingdom. Of course, this is not a, a poverty-driven church. We don't have a poverty gospel. We celebrate God's goodness to us. We don't look suspiciously at one another, their expenditures. All of that is death. But I want you to be free. I want you to, I want you to be wealthy, actually. But I want you to be free. These things are important. You, have, you, you really can't ever allow yourself in a, to go in a period of life where you allow this line of necessities and, and non-necessities to be blurred. You need that line. God may give you many non-necessities, but you need to have a clear idea of what the necessities are. Um, not going to go more into that. I just don't have time. Secondly, let's focus on this phrase, those who were with me. Who does that include? Because that's the whole idea here. It's like it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul is saying, I cared for the needs of those who were of myself and those who were with me. Well, <laughs> important thing to note here is just that the heart attitude behind this question. You can ask this question, Lord, who is with me? Like, who should I be thinking about providing for? And you can ask that with a heart that's like, whoever you tell me, I'm down, right? Um, but there's also a way to ask it like, like the lawyer in the Gospels asked it when he said, who's my neighbor? Uh, which prompted Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, which was basically Jesus saying, way more people than you think. So, so it is necessary, I think, at some level to ask, like, who does God want me to care for? It's a very practical question. But I would not want to ask that question in a way that was prompted out of a heart of, I hope that's a short list. 
<laughs> right? Which would be really easy to do. So, so I think the idea here is, is that no one in this list for Paul were actually his formal responsibilities. I, Paul did not drop into this town to provide for people's physical needs. He just was able to do so, so he did it, right? So I think that really this is a heart issue more than it is specifics, but let me just give you kind of maybe a bullet point list of people who you might consider to be with you, people that you have responsibility toward, definitely your family, your parents. The Bible calls you to have care for those in the household of faith. I think that's specifically aimed toward being concerned for their poverty, among other things, but there's lots of other potential options there. Specifically, the legitimate poor in the world, be happy to have a conversation with you about what that means, and then especially widows and orphans. The bigger point, though, is, is that those who are with me is an indicator that Paul was just being generous beyond what he was responsible for being generous. So long story short, if you want to be blessed at work, you want to feel happy, have a sense of favorable God's favor on you, then you need to see your work as a means of providing for the weak. And if you can love what you do, then great. But you can, without circumstantial change, love those you're doing it for right now. Okay, not much time. I'm going to cover the last point relatively quickly. The main idea of these texts that we've observed is that Paul's tent-making ministry supported the ministry of the word. That's the main idea. Everything else that we've covered is, I think, good, but that's the main idea. So we would want to understand that the obvious priority, the obvious priority of work that exists in the world is work related to the spread of the word. Again, back in verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here's what I want you to see. Paul is leaving. His physical tent-making work is done. His tent-making work is like tents uh, themselves, temporary. They come and go. Definitely not a primary identity. It's not <laughs> Your career is definitely not your primary identity. It's a part of your identity. It's definitely not primary identity. It's like a tent. It'll come and go. What is left? Paul's leaving. What is left after Paul leaves? He's going to be absent. So what is left after Paul leaves? Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the first key in seeing work biblically is shift from finding fulfillment in it to, you know, what we've talked about. The second key is to understand that your work, one of the fundamental things going on with your work is supporting the ministry of the word. Because while you and your career have a relatively short lifespan, the word of God goes on forever. The word of God is what Paul commends these people to after his work amongst them is done because the word of God is actually able to build them up. The word of God keeps working even after Paul's work is done. So you and I should see our work. Firstly, how am I helping to care for the weak? 
Secondly, how am I in my vocation helping to move the word of God out into the world? So the word of God is able to build not just businesses and products and intellectual property, but the word of God does build human souls and human souls last forever. And the word delivers, the text says, them into the inheritance of the saints. You know, years ago when I was very young, I read the book of Proverbs and I always had this dream of doing a homestead one day and who knows if that'll ever come true. But there was a verse that stuck out to me in Proverbs that kind of had a homesteady vibe. And it was uh, 24, 27. It says, prepare your work outside, get ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house, which basically means, because I did a bunch of study on this, plant your garden before you build your house. And that really struck me. And I was wondering, well, what's going on with that? Because I don't understand why I would want to plant my garden before I build my house. And there are lots of different takes on it. But the one that seemed most persuasive to me is that when you build your house, it's done. It is what it is. But when you build a garden, it keeps working for you long after you stopped working on it. So what you want to do is you want to build your garden before you build your house and then leave the garden alone, and it's going to keep working. It's going to keep growing. And then go build your house. And while you're building your house and while you're working on your house, the garden keeps growing. I feel like this is an extremely helpful insight into what it means to be a Christian who supports the ministry of the word through giving. Because what you're doing there is you're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to support the ministry of the word in a local church. And that work that the word is doing, is just going to keep doing. It's going to keep growing. It's going to keep multiplying. It's going to exponentialize and so forth. And then I'll go do my work over here. And while I'm doing my work over here, this work that I started, that I funded, it's going to keep working, even though I'm not doing anything with it this particular moment. So God has given his people this, there's this phrase called sublimation, which just means to mean to elevate something from one level to another. God gives his people the gift of sublimation every area of our lives. And in this area, it's like he has let you, he has given you the privilege of turning your work into things that are eternal. It's like when you fund the word, he's allowing your, your, your sweat to sublimate into eternal glory joy. Uh, God has given you the incredible privilege of being able to support the ministry of the word that goes on all the time around the world and grows people, souls who last forever. And that's kind of like the garden. And it just keeps growing and increasing. And the word that you deposit in someone's life, it just doesn't ever return void. It just keeps growing and keeps growing and keeps growing. And so if you want a sense of fulfillment connected to your work, give money to support the ministry of the word because then there's this thing, there's this garden that you've had a little hand in developing and it's just doing its thing all the time, all the time, all the time. It's like one of the curses of being young that you don't ask, how did this all come into being kind of just generally it's just, I mean, we've all done, we've all gone through that phase where it's like, you don't ask like, how does this exist? It's just like, it's here. Great. Like it exists because a bunch of people for 20 years, just about coming next year, have built this little garden that does its thing while they're out building their house. So, and this is not, this is, this is legitimately a gift to you. It allows you to never actually be in a rat race one day of your whole life. 
It allows you to never, ever, ever, ever have to feel like your work has no meaning or value. Like, like it, 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 God gives you the gift of eternal meaning, of, of sublimation. Look that word up later. It's a profound word. He gives you the gift of having eternal meaning in selling fries, if that's what you do. And this all takes place through tithes and offerings. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I think the, the, the idea of when a pastor talks about this, because I, I don't talk about it very often, is like, whoa, we must really be hurting if we're talking about this. No, nope. this is legitimately God's gift to you right now. This is like his favor to you, not the other way around. Don't, don't get it. Don't get it crossed, as they say. Um, as soon as the fall happens, I think it's probably before, but we see it as soon as, as soon as we see Cain and Abel, we see this thing of mankind giving some of the fruit of their work to God. And long before the formal development of the law, we see Abraham giving a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek, who is a Christ figure, all the way at the beginning. So one of the things to be important to say is, is that giving to God a tithe or whatever, that's, it's not a law thing. It, 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 it's a deeper than that thing. This is the deep, the deep principles of creation that, that go beneath even the law. And one of them is just this habit, this thing that God has done in which people give part of their earnings to God. And one of the things we see, even if it were a law thing, just incidentally is, is that whatever was true of the law is like tripled in the new covenant. So if adultery was one thing under the law, when Jesus talks about it, it's looking at someone with lust in your eyes. If murder was one thing in the law, with Jesus, it's like being angry. The standards go up, not down, under the gospel. You know, we used to sacrifice bulls. Now Romans 12 says we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So the standards always raise, not decrease. And this really is God's gift to you. It's his way of allowing you to have a piece of a a piece of an investment that you have no business being in. Um, and that investment is the kingdom of God. The spread, the spread of his word, the growth of his saints forever and ever and ever. And so the basic idea that I commend you to, and we'll be happy to have lots of practical conversations with you about is, I think we need to understand that what that means is when God gives increase to me, whether that's through paychecks or stimulus plans or side hustles, or increases on stock portfolios, or whatever. When God increases something, I have the privilege of giving a piece of that increase back to him, and I get to then say a thing I don't deserve to be able to say. I am funding and taking part in the spread of God's kingdom into all the world through the ministry of his word. This is God's way of crowning your work with eternal meaning. It's his way of ensuring that no matter what is going on at your job, whether good or bad, you can say, not only am I working hard to care for myself and my immediate circle, but also in ways I can't even begin to calculate, I am contributing to eternal joy for other human souls. And my work matters at a level it wouldn't if I didn't do that. So that's the two lessons of the text. One, focus more on loving those you're doing it for than loving what you do. Number two, 
one of the best ways you can love, the best way you can love someone is to give them the word, is to help them have access to the word. And I'll leave you with what Paul says in 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So introducing communion, I was remembering, I was thinking about how Jesus saw his work. And there's actually a verse in John 17. John 17, Jesus is praying. It's right before he's betrayed and offered up on the cross. And in John 17, he's praying. And one of the first things he says in verse 4 is that he did everything God wanted him to do, which none of us are going to ever be able to say. But it's pretty incredible that Jesus could. Jesus says, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I did it. Number two, his work, so far as he could see, which he saw perfectly, was related to the people that God had given him. So he saw his fulfillment and work related to how he served those he, God had given them. Verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Number, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Verse 14, I've given them your word. So Jesus is seeing exactly what I put forward as the two things. He's seeing, I serve these people, and he's saying, I gave them your word. Right? And then after he's done praying, Judas comes and betrays him. He's carried away. He's arrested. He's tried unjustly. And he's crucified. And all that means is the work, in order for it to really take root, the last piece of that process is sacrifice. The last piece of that is sacrifice, sacrificial giving. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what this table represents. His work completed, his offering, his perfect righteousness that he earned, that he deserved, he gave it away to you and I. He gave it away to you and I. So today when you partake of this table, you you are able to say, Jesus, you earned and you gave to me. And truly, truly you are blessed because you have given and I have received. Come and partake.